0: Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And
1: Storage King.
0: The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic!
1: Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dandrel shortly and of course our former ITN journo-turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Another incredibly busy week on the football front has passed and another is in the offing. So we're going to kick off this week's show with the voice of football in Australia, Network 10 and Paramount Plus' Simon Hill for an extended chat. First up about the Socceroos' dates with destiny next Thursday evening against our old foe Japan in the World Cup qualifying in Sydney and the following week against Saudi Arabia in Jeddah. Then we'll shift the discussion to matters abroad and take Simon's view on everything from the Premier League title race which has come alive this week to the ongoing story that is the imminent sale of Chelsea and what all that means. Well, i after that with the latest on the Matildas and Socceroos from a club point of view. Then after losing the A-League Women's Grand Final qualifier by the barest of margins we'll talk to Melbourne City's Kiwi defender Rebecca Stott ahead of their Derby Final against Victory this Sunday afternoon at Amy Park to see who will face Sydney FC in next week's Grand Final. And of course we'll wrap it up with our extended stoppage time with Derek Edge. Welcome back. Uh, We've got the band back together after Derek and Willem took the week off. Uh, what was top of mind in football in your world this week?
2: Hello, Rob. Hello, listeners uh, right around Australia and the world, obviously. Uh, and happy Friday. We're recording the show on Friday for those uh, eagle-eared listeners who are picking up that it's been a little while since we've done the show, uh, but yeah, what a huge, what a huge week, and um, what a massive week ahead for the Socceroos. The most two most important fixtures for the Socceroos, arguably since our 2019 exit. To, uh, to the UAE uh, of the Asian Cup or even the uh, World Cup games we played in 2018. Can't wait for the match against Sydney next Thursday in Sydney and uh, fingers crossed we get through that one. What it will be a humongous ginormous match in Jeddah against Saudi Arabia. Not to mention all the other news Rob and we're going to talk to Simon Hill about sports washing oligarch owners, the roos We're going to talk to Rebecca Stott from Melbourne City about what is going to be a massive um, A-League women preliminary final. The Melbourne Derby. First time ever the two Melbourne teams have met in a final. That one's going to be a cracker. So, lots to look forward to and a lot to reflect on
1: certainly is. Well, Willem, uh, get us rolling, my friend. What's uh, top of the news agenda this week, brother?
3: Top of the news agenda, Rob, it's got to be Bruno Fornaroli, I think. And just quickly, well done on uh, the show last week. I really enjoyed uh, listening to it as I had a bit of a breather and I thought it was really nice the way you uh, bookended the show with uh, a tribute to our mate Warnie as well. So well done there. So Bruno Fornaroli is in Graham Arnold's extended squad for the Soccerers World Cup qualifiers against Japan and Saudi Arabia. The 34-year-old represented Uruguay's under-17s in 2003, but was recently granted Australian citizenship, having played in the A-League since 2015. Also included for the first time are Nick D'Agostino and Nathaniel Atkinson. Jamie McLaren, however, will not be available for the trip to Jeddah as he is getting married. Michael, I'll throw to you first here a bit of conjecture around what fauna selection means uh, from the broader perspective of Australia's youth development, and that's fair enough. I think we can consider that. Uh, option and issue and separately, except what a magnificent story that it is that Fauneroli, a man who's come here like many throughout the history of Australian football and fallen in love with our game, committed wholeheartedly. Uh, he's got his kids in Australian schools. He's a citizen now uh, and now feels the the desire and the connection to pull on the green and gold and give everything for the side. I think that's something that, that should be lauded and something that should be uh, praised in Australian football at a, at a time when there's a, a hell of a lot of criticism flying around.
2: Absolutely. For those people that are talking about... Um... Um, you know, it's a shame that Bruno Forneroli's been except, uh, selected for the soccer squad because uh, he uh, was a Uruguayan, now an Australian. Uh, I just need those people to uh, take a bit of a chill pill. And just. I'm going to channel... Uh, Willem, you're a little bit younger than uh, Rob and I, so you didn't grow up in the time when we used to go to church... Every Sunday, we'd put on soccer broadcasting service and we'd have the eulogy from Les Murray and Johnny Warren. I'm going to channel a bit of Captain Socceroo, uh, one of my great mates who I miss dearly every day. Uh, He said, the most courageous Australians are the ones that make it their home. And I might just leave that with uh, our listeners to think about. Godspeed to you, Bruno, and I can't wait to cheer you on and celebrate in the stands when you slot one in to the back of the net and help the Socceroos qualify for... 2022 guitar go Socceroos.
3: To the O-League Women's final, Sydney FC have booked their place and earned hosting rights for next Sunday's grand final after picking back a two-goal deficit and then running away with their semi-final against Melbourne City. Ali
0: Green following up one assist already tonight. Hawksby brings it down. Cotty! Yeah. Sydney yeah. Level, The mark of champions. Vines
3: City now meet Melbourne Victory at Amy Park this Sunday. The first time we'll see a Melbourne Derby final after victory rolled Adelaide United 2-1 last weekend.
0: Privatelli has been the main outlet for victory so far. This time, loads up across. It's going to fall. <laughs> it Melina Molinares is fired up, and so is the victory 2-1.
2: Fantastic performance by Melbourne Victory, including Melina Reyes, who captured the ball, uh, turned her opponent, squirted it to Leah Pruditeli, and then went on a 50-metre run and slotted home uh, the goal that won the match for Melbourne Victory. So nothing wrong with Melina's amstring. And I reckon Sydney FC and Melbourne City might just be thinking, whoopsie-doo, we've got Melina and Claudia Bunge back in that team, and all of a sudden, they look a bit dangerous.
3: The Sydney Super Cup clash between Celtic and Rangers appears to be in some doubt, with fans from both clubs continuing to rally against the transplantation of their rivalry across the world for commercial gain. Jason Pine, our good mate from Sky Sports New Zealand, of all people, has this week tweeted, unresolved issues with organisers have escalated behind the scenes, and the Glasgow press have jumped all over it, with Rangers fans particularly disappointed pleased at being used as what they see as a foil for Ange Postacoglu's homecoming. Earlier this week, New South Wales Sports Minister Stuart Ayres implored fans not to be dickheads in and around the fixture. Uh, Vince Rugari was uh, reporting on this with the Sydney Morning Herald and he said event organisers are going to consult Glasgow Police around the management uh, of the event. So it's hard to know, Rob, if the uncertainty is real or if the Scottish press and the Scottish public are sort of jumping on any morsel and looking to magnify it uh, to degrade the clash. But I think the comments of Ayres... Were interesting. He said that it's 2022 and not 1986. And that, to an extent, maybe indicates a lack of understanding of what they might have bitten off. Well, you know I tend to, from our
1: previous discussion, agree with that point of view. I, I, I take the visionary viewpoint and think that if the Scottish football... Uh, uh, Fans are expecting their big clubs to be uh, alongside of the biggest clubs on the world stage. That they've got to do things like this. But uh, um, I've been having a bit of banter with Jordan Campbell from the Athletic, um, who is a a member of that broad Athletic uh, diaspora that we we, uh, regularly communicate with. And uh, he sent me a message last night um, on that very uh, subject, suggesting that um, that all of the the news over there is that the whole thing's going to fall apart. So uh, I connected him with Vince Rigari to, to pick up on that story that Vince had written. So um, the world is a very small place these days and communications, um, travel quickly. So it sort of feels like where there's smoke, there's fire, doesn't
3: it? I think so. I think so. I'll be surprised if it uh, goes ahead. Particularly, I mean, I think Celtic will be out here. Where the Rangers come will be uh, a different matter. The APL are also looking to bring another side out here, Barcelona, uh, and to possibly revive the A-League All-Stars concept after eight years on the back burner. A fixture in late May or early June has been reportedly uh, liaised with between the APL and the A-League clubs. And state government funding is also close to being secured. Uh, Vince, Jari's colleague, Don Bossy, has been reporting this one. The curious part, I guess, Michael, is the timing of the match with the A-League Grand Final scheduled for the same week. So as a result, any All-Star squad would be without the players who have uh, deemed themselves to be the best or playing in the best teams uh, at the season's pointy end. So that seems like a pretty quick way to undermine the integrity of what's already a pretty divisive topic, the A-League All-Stars. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an oversight of epic
2: proportions, isn't it? But um, I actually don't mind the... Uh, I much prefer the A-League All-Stars playing international clubs than... Uh, our local A-League clubs uh, during their pre-seasons because of the, um, the lack of um, competitiveness that there will be so I'm actually a bit of a fan of the A-League All-Stars I think it's something that uh, we could develop and it's a unique proposition that uh, other sporting codes don't have Uh, uh, very much access to so I actually think it's a good idea and I just hope they work that out but I agree with you Um, it would be uh, the wrong thing to do to play the A-League All-Stars without any A-League players from the grand final
3: Overseas now London investment firm Aethel Partners have submitted a £2 billion bid to buy Chelsea and have stated keeping Thomas Tuchel is one of their priorities the firm have pledged £50 million immediately to ease the financial pressure on the club which is operating under a special UK government licence following the freezing of Roman Abramovich's assets in the country. It's been reported up to 20 credible parties have shown interest in buying the club, with the most public of those, the consortium fronted by Swiss billionaire Hans-Jörg Wiss and US businessman Todd Bowley. So, Rob, this has been uh, simmering, this issue of club ownership and state-based ownership uh, for a long time now, but it certainly feels since Russia's invasion of Ukraine that there has been something of a moral reckoning around club ownership. It's been a tense couple of weeks at Chelsea. We'll bring in Simon and Derek uh, in the next segment to chat about this at length. But yeah, it definitely does feel like the uh, the narrative moved on to a more pressing uh, sort of as i said moral moral reckoning yeah, it does with uh,
1: the as you say that the chelsea story in russia and the uh, saudi arabia behind newcastle i was uh, interested in some articles written about eddie howe's response to uh, questions asked about him and saudi arabian ownership following the uh, the the announcement during the week uh, of uh, of 81 uh, executions on the same day and that uh, that Eddie Howe unlike Thomas Tuchel uh, who was prepared to to discuss the issues at hand uh, pretty much just batted it back and uh, um, and the, the way that one particular article in the Times analysed it really uh, put it up in sharp focus uh, and, and made, well, I agreed with the topic that the journalist was making or, or the point that they were making in, in that, that Eddie Howe can't have his cake and eat it too. He, he can't accept the money and know the source of the money without having an opinion on it. He doesn't have to walk away necessarily, but he uh, he's obliged to have an opinion because he came in after the event as opposed to Tuchel who came in
3: prior. Yep, yep no fair call. And look, let's be honest, 90% of ownership discussion in football, particularly in the uh, in the UK and around Europe, is sort of generally pretty negative. But to one club who have gotten it right over the years, Leicester City and their ownership under the Srivadana Prava family. Uh, some good news this week around what you know, what was a somber story back in 2018 when Kun Vishay uh, passed away. Leicester City Council have approved plans for a statue of Kun Vishay to be erected at the north end of the King Power Stadium. Uh, his son Top has said it would be a, a permanent and fitting tribute. It will be surrounded by planter boxes and benches, allowing fans the chance to, quote, sit, dwell and reflect on the contribution of Vishai to the club edge
2: yeah absolutely fabulous um, obviously Thailand has a special place in my heart. I'll do so much work there, but um, he is a, a superstar in the king power. He was a superstar and sadly you know passed away in a tragic helicopter accident leaving the ground and uh, his legacy was obviously the title um the 5001 title um, we made Rob. Tanner, a superstar around the world with his book, 5,001, didn't we, Rob? But um, yeah, no, seriously, that is a great, um, you know, I'm not, um, statues, uh, a lot of people argue about statues and their relevance, especially in a historical context, but I think that that is one well-earned Willem.
3: No, I certainly certainly think so, and it's not, yeah, your sort of statue, it is more of a memorial, a little, a small little park area there off to the, uh, the north end of the King Power Stadium. Rob? Yeah, no, excellent. Nice way to to
1: wrap that up. Okay, boys, uh, let's sit tight. We're going to talk to Simon Hill. We're going to range across a a few different uh, areas uh, off the top. We're all just sitting on the edge of our seats just waiting. I I don't feel um, like we've had a sense of anticipation for uh, a couple of of World Cup qualifiers for a long time now. Um, This sort of feels like... uh, uh, the better part of 20 years ago when we were anticipating the Uruguay match. Uh, we're going to talk to Simon Hill about that and then also a bunch of the other discussion points that are ranging around football. Simon's an expert. He's a, a regular expert on uh, the likes of Talk Sport uh, and other UK media. So uh, we're really privileged to have a chat with him. So stick around, Simon Hill next on Box to Box.
0: Box to Box. Can you believe- the Chemist Warehouse Home of real brands and real savings
1: And Storage King
0: The kings of storage, moving and more And this could be the most crucial goal of all
1: Yes, this is Box to Box And we are delighted to be joined by our friend Simon Hill From Network 10 and Paramount Plus uh, We're going to have a chat to Simon about a few different topics uh, First up, we want to talk about the uh, what we're all very eagerly awaiting over the course of the next couple of weeks, and that is the uh, the final two World Cup qualifiers uh, for the Socceroos against the Blue Samurai and then the Green Falcons, uh, Japan and Saudi Arabia, respectively. How are you, Simon?
4: Very good, guys. How are you?
1: Good, mate. Simon, it's been a while since we've been on the edge of our seat qualifying for a World Cup. It sort of almost feels like 2005 again those heady days when we are anticipating the the Uruguay match after all the disappointment of the previous sort of t- two, uh, 20, 30 years. Um, is, is that your read on things?
4: Yeah, I think so. Um, obviously, these are vital games and it's on a knife edge as it was in 2005. I mean, we've had one or two of these down the years. We've probably forgotten, you know,
2: the game against... Uh, Honduras? That, what about Honduras in the last qualification? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, we really, couldn't get any closer to the wire than that.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, you, th- you think about that uh, late free kick for Syria in the AFC yes. qualifier. Yeah, hit the, the bar. Post. Uh, So we've, we've had a few, um, but I think because it's against the top two in the group, um, it, it's almost like straight shootouts. You know, they feel like cup knockouts almost. Uh, you know, we lose against Japan, essentially automatic qualification is is over. So, yeah, it's it's exciting, but never uh, wracking at the same time. And I think compounded by the fact that probably most of us are a little bit concerned as to where Australia are at as a team um, and, you know, whether we have got the capabilities within the squad to go out and win uh, both games. So I'm sure we'll talk
2: more about that. Well, Simon, that's a good segue into my first question for you is because uh, we've lost one match in the entire um, second and third phase of the qualifications, mm-hmm. yeah. and that was uh, against Japan in Tokyo. So on the surface, you think that's not such a bad thing, but there is a lot of good judges in the in the sport suggesting that this is um, not a strong uh, group of players and that Graham Arnold, the coach, has a Herculean task. Um, And we've had that little, you could say we've had a lull in form, the draw in Oman, uh, obviously off the back of the draw against China in the UAE as well. So, you know, what's your take on the quality of the group, uh, the form they're in, and the approach to these two games?
4: Well, you're right. You look at uh, that... Uh, record in, in the loss column and it's it's pretty meagre. So on that regard, maybe Arnie's being judged a bit harshly at the moment. But, you know, coaches are always judged on World Cup qualifications, at least Socceroos coaches are. And, you know, Andrew Postacogli went through the same thing uh, four years ago. That's why the national team resonates with with so many people. So in terms of the, you know, the form of, of the team at the moment, I don't think it's great, to be honest. Uh, They've they played well in patches in the last three qualifiers. I mean, we, you know, we excluded the draw against Saudi Arabia as well, um, where the Saudis really finished very strongly. Although, you know, prior to that, Australia played reasonably well without creating an awful lot of chances. Um, so I think it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, you know, maybe we got lulled into a bit of a false sense of security. I know a lot was made of this, oh, you know, we've won 11 straight, um, but really with the greatest respect, you look at the opposition that you know, we were up against in that first phase of qualifying. And uh, you know it wasn't the highest of of quality. So this was always going to be the acid test. Um, The concern is, is, you know, that they they're not uh, protecting leads. You know, against Oman, really that was a game they should have won, um, but could not hang on. Now, again, there's been a lot of theories put forward, and I tend to subscribe to the fact that uh, you know there is a, a little bit of a Problem defensively. That's not necessarily to say it's it's the goalkeeper or the back four, but it's, you know, there's also the, the protective element from midfield as well. And Graham Arnold, when he spoke to us on my, on my radio show the other night, almost sort of admitted that, you know, we, we need somebody, um, if only we could get him back, like, you know, like Vinnie Grella uh, in there to really uh, have that grunt in, in the defensive part of midfield to protect. Uh, the back line, and at the moment, you know, maybe that's the sort of player that we're missing. Um, personally, I'd, I'd love to see Cammy Devlin get a go. I know he's injured for this uh, particular window, which is unfortunate, but, um, you know, maybe maybe it's time to look at one or two others because at the moment I think the players that have played there, and it's not that they're bad players by any stretch, uh, but I'm not sure they're quite, you know, suited to, to that role.
2: Yeah, big shoes to Phil Vinigrelli was um, obviously... Um... Uh, arguably one of the best number sixes to play for Australia. Um, Let's just uh, for a moment reflect on Bruno Fornaroli. I must admit, I'm feeling great about this story, the narrative it is great. I mean, Australia's a migrant country. Um, Simon, uh, you're a migrant to Australia too. So um, I might just add that you are the voice of Australian football and uh, I I just think it's a great story. You've been calling him in the A-League for many, many years. Um, How do you feel about Bruno being... Um, selected for the Socceroos uh, at, at, at the juncture that we we're at with these two critical games? Well,
4: well, first of all, you're right that it is a great story, um, particularly at the age of 34. Maybe I'm not the best person to ask on this because I'm, you know, a migrant to this country now. Obviously, I've, I've made this country home. Um, obviously, at the age of 54, <laughs> and given my capability <laughs> as well, and fitness, I am not going to be called up to play for the Socceroos. But, but I have to say... You know, let, let's for a moment uh, put all that aside and imagine that Graham Arnold has called me up. I'm not sure I could do that, uh, and I've been here 20 years. Now, everybody's different. Uh, everybody, you know, has has a different career path, and of course, footballers want to play international football. I guess it's what is in your heart. Uh, you know, if Bruno completely feels Australian, he's certainly been here long enough. Then, then brilliant. Um, and I'm, I'm by no means saying that it's it's the wrong thing to do. I understand why Arnie's called him up. I completely understand why Bruno's accepted that call-up. If it were me, and this is why it's, I think it's always down to the individual, if it were me, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable, even after this length of time in the country, uh, pulling on a jersey other than the one that's the country of my birth, and I think that's what makes international football special or at least used to but i think international football has has almost become a you know a version of club football people move around um and you know wear different colors uh, I know people will point to Martin Boyle and Harry Sutar and say, well, you know, they weren't born in Australia, but they do have Australian parentage, at least. So, you know, they've got a link to the country. Now, obviously, Bruno has as well because he's, he's lived here a long time. But I also remember, you know, this is where the double standard comes in, uh, when Australia played China and a fair few people were saying, oh, you know, you can't have Elkerson playing for China. He's not Chinese. Um, and one or two of the other... You know imports that they brought in, and yeah, we're sort of doing the same thing. It's it's international football. I don't have a point. They've, they've broken no rules. Um, I, I'm delighted for Bruno to get the chance to play international football. He's a super player, terrific guy, uh, and I understand why Arnie's done it. But I'm I'm just putting that out there that I think it's... It how many how many
2: work. Scots and Welsh have played for England, Simon? Sorry, say again. How many Scotsmen and Welshmen have played for England?
4: Uh, I don't know about Scotsmen and Welshmen. I know there's a fair few Englishmen that played for Ireland uh, (laughs) back in the day. I I can remember Ray Houghton who was, uh, I think, born in Scotland and played for Ireland. So, you know, uh, there is crossover. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying any rules have been broken. Um, I just think, as I say, it's... It comes down to the individual.
1: All right, mate. Hey, Simon. Thanks for uh, for that chat about the Socceroos. Um, if you could stick around um, after the break, we're going to get Derek on the line. We want to start to uh, have a yarn about some of the the more broader international footballing matters that are on the agenda so uh, yeah stick around
0: box to box can you believe it for chemist warehouse
1: home of real brands and real savings and storage king
0: the kings of storage moving and more and this could be the most crucial goal of
1: all welcome back to box to box before the break we we're talking to simon hill about the socceroos we're going to extend our horizon and talk what matters of european football uh, derek is on the line with us derek
5: we're here to talk about Chelsea um obviously Simon this story is just sort of going from strength to strength and we were talking about this last week we weren't we weren't lauding Roman Abramovich but we were certainly talking about how this was a um a meteoric um story we were talking about the uh the impact that that Abramovich has had on the uh on the Premier League and global football in general there's now a queue of suitors lining up to take the club uh, stories emerging every hour as the deadline today looms a uh, european time we've got the chicago cubs owner uh candy from the uk consortium there's some kind of saudi interest as well um well we can't we don't know who it's going to be but what kind of owner are chelsea looking for and 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 more broadly what kind of owner do we all Want them to get
4: well. I think the answer to the first question is depressingly obvious—a rich one. Um, the answer to the second question is is more important in terms of uh, the long term picture for football in England and indeed, you know, around Europe and the world. And I think, you know, I've said this a few times. In my own club, Manchester City, is is owned by obviously, you know, the United Arab Emirates Group, uh, City Football Group under the leadership of of Sheikh Mansour, we've got Paris Saint-Germain with the Qataris, we've got, uh, you know, Newcastle with the Saudis. And I think really this is uh, a a watershed moment for football um, for for far too long. And and I include myself in this. We have let this stuff through to the keeper because there's almost been a sense of, well, what can you do about it? And, um, you know, how else, the clubs compete outside the established elites, other than going to get a sugar daddy. That's, you know, certainly been my line over the last few years for Manchester City. And it's not because I have any, you know, great love for the regime in the UAE um, or the things that, or some of the things that they, you know, do in their own country. But you know, football has gone down this road for so many years um, and dance with the devil, if you want to put it that way. Uh, in order to get cash, uh, which is important, of course, you know the, the sport is a business; it, it needs money. But maybe we've we've reached this line in the sand where we all have to start questioning where this money comes from, and whether the clubs that we love um, really are in the right hands. Um, and that's that's a broader question that's. You know, fans in England, uh, the authorities, the governments, uh, even around the world, ha- have to put their thinking caps on and, and come up with an answer because there is no doubt. You know, you, you're seeing Chelsea fans chanting, or at least a section of the Chelsea fans chanting the name of Roman Abramovich, even with what's going on at the moment. It's it's pretty distasteful. Uh, but I reckon lots of other clubs will do exactly the same thing. And this is the short-term you know, nature, short-term thinking of of football and football fans because we're so passionate about our clubs that we are almost willing to ignore anything and that can't be allowed to continue. I don't know what the answer is. I think it requires not just government intervention in the UK but, you know, probably some sort of international coalition, sporting coalition, government coalition, I don't know, um, to say, look, you know, these... Football clubs are uh, of their communities, and they need to be protected for their communities. Um, you know, now Chelsea at the moment, obviously going through a you know pretty tough patch, and it's not their players' fault, it's not their fans' fault, it's not their coaches' fault. Um, but it's possible, you know, if if these restraints remain in place, and I don't know what the long term outcome is, that Chelsea could drop into administration, which is extraordinary you know, for a club that is is currently the the World Club champions. So I I think we have to have a long, hard discussion about all this and everybody needs to, you know, have a bit of reality check because, you know, Roman Abramovich, whether he admits it or not, has links to Putin and people are dying in Ukraine. I I can't overemphasise that enough. You know, people are being bombed in their houses. Children are being killed by this war, this invasion. And, you know, we, we've got, if not blood on our hands, then we sh- certainly should have a guilty conscience to a certain degree as a sport for allowing, you know, people to infiltrate our game and, uh, you know, sanitize those regimes through the sport that we all love. Now, there'll be a large contingent of football fans that go, yeah, you're talking absolute nonsense, it's got nothing to do with football, sport and politics should be separate. Well, yeah, I think we've realised over the years that just ain't the case. Uh, And football has invited that link by uh, allowing that money in. And again, I include my own club in this. Um, we've all got to have a long, hard think about this because as much as we love football and despite what Bill Shankly said about football being more important than life and death, which I think he meant ironically anyway, by the way, it's not. It's just a game and there are bigger things at play here.
2: Simon, um, what does it say about um, Western media um, and specifically the English media and the ability until this tipping point to ignore uh, what Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates are doing in Yemen. Um, I mean, Russia is going to be banned from the twenty twenty two World Cup, but Saudi and Iran are likely to be there, and they've dropped more bombs combined in Yemen than Russia has in Ukraine. What does this? What does it say about Western media and the English football community that um, until this tipping point, you've almost it's almost been okay to ignore that?
4: Well, first of all, I don't know whether that's strictly true. There certainly have been very difficult questions asked in the past. In fact, as long ago as uh, 2011, I think, uh, I think it was Matthew Syed, the journalist from The Times or The Telegraph, one or the two, who went on Sky News in the UK and complained quite bitterly about Roman Abramovich's continued involvement. And there have been journalists who have you know, seriously questioned uh, UAE involvement in Manchester City, Saudi Arabian involvement in Newcastle United. So I don't think you can throw a blanket, you know, over all of the, of the British media. Um, you know, similarly, are there any journalists in Australia who are asking questions about, you know, our involvement? Now, to be fair, ABC did a, uh, a documentary about foreign investment in in the A League a couple of months ago. Now I questioned not not the reports because there was nothing factually incorrect about what was done, but the fact that it had taken them. 10 years almost to, you know, to bring that to light. You know, the Backerys here who have a rather colourful record in Indonesia have been in charge of Brisbane now for goodness knows how many years. The City Football Group took over Melbourne Heart and turned into Melbourne City as, as long ago as 2014. David Traktovenko, you know, with Sydney FC, I, I know that they've come out publicly in the last few days and said, oh, well, it, it now belongs to Scott Barlow and his wife, Alina. You know, uh, well, Scott's his son-in-law. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's incorrect, that information, by the way. But, you know, th- I think we all have a duty to to ask these questions. And maybe, you know, we haven't done so enough. I will say one further point on this, though. You know, we are now asking questions about Abramovich and about the Saudis and about the Emiratis. Should we also have asked questions about the Americans when they invaded iraq we've got a lot of american owners in
2: yeah the Premier League. yeah i An think awful. that's a reasonably fair question um,
4: yeah. and yet that seems to have you know evaded the public gaze because of course you know they're one of us, and we were a part of that coalition of the willing both the uk and australia going you know killing people in iraq so should we throw all the americans out as well I, look i'm not saying we should i'm just saying that it's You know, it's incumbent upon all of us, really, to ask these very difficult questions because football and politics are combined, whether we like it or not.
2: And once you uh, start uh, ruling a line through some uh, players in this uh, in this uh, situation, um, you know, when football and politics. Clash like they are, you know, the, the questions are never ending. Um, there's obviously an original sin in everything, and uh, you talk to a drug addict and they talk about the first time they had their first hit, which drove them to develop the habit and continue to go back for more and more. Was the um, England football's gleeful acceptance of Abranovich's money 20 years ago the original sin? It seemed to be off the back of that there was um, a cascading domino effect. Um, um, obviously, probably the next. Significant owner of um, that you, you could really draw a lot of um, uh, doubt over was the was was taxon Shinawatra who um, sold bought and then sold Manchester City to Sheikh Mansour um, and then obviously of recent times uh, MBS Mohammed bin Salman at Newcastle United and all of the inflationary spend that came from Abramovich's, um operating uh, techniques in the in the Premier League in terms of pinching other coaches and players. So was that the original sin?
4: No. And again, this is much misunderstood, I think, generally. You have to look at the genesis as to why Roman Abramovich came on board, not just for his own ends, but from a football point of view for a club like Chelsea and, you know, later with Manchester City and subsequently more recently with Newcastle United. So this all started, and this could be about a half an hour discussion, by the way, um, this all started, you know, in my opinion, uh, as long ago as, as the 80s. Now, football always financially in England uh, existed a fine balance. You had bigger clubs or smaller clubs, but there was a rule in place whereby if you had a home match, two thirds of the, of the receipts, the gate receipts, which in those days was the vast majority of the money that the clubs earned before the big TV deals, uh, stayed with the home side and a third went to the away team. Now, the reason why it was divided up that way was to give the smaller clubs a share of that gate money and to, you know, so they didn't get too disadvantaged by the fact that they were a smaller club because the bigger clubs still needed clubs to play against. Uh, so it was a way of redistributing some of the wealth. Now, in the 80s, the big clubs, the Manchester United, the Liverpools, the Tottenham's, the Arsenals, uh, decided we're not having that. We want to keep all that cash. And that was the first little chipping away at the equality or semi-equality of English football. Then after that, of course, um, we had the Premier League. And that was, again, a bid, a grab for money um, to get more of the TV cash. Uh, Sky Sky Sports came on board and all of a sudden elevated the financials to a different level. And even then, still, the clubs were relatively equal, or at least the 20 in the top flight. But remember, that big gap was growing between the Premier League and the rest, which is why you saw the yo-yo clubs. Then the next domino to fall was the Champions League. Before 92, of course, it was the European Cup. It was a straight knockout. Then the big clubs, the old G14, they pushed to have this group stage because more money. T- more games equals more money. Then we had a second group stage, if you remember briefly, before they they did away with that. And what happened over time is that the clubs that finished in the top four, by and large, Man Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, started to pull away financially from the rest because of the riches on offer in the Champions League. And this was most in evidence in the smaller countries of Europe. If you look at uh, Norway, Rosenberg, I think, won 13 titles in a row in the early 2000s because financially they qualify for the Champions League every year. They were on a different planet to the rest of the domestic clubs. Now, what was the only way for the other clubs to catch up? the only way was to go out and get a sugar daddy and to try and bridge that gap financially uh, so you could possibly have a chance of making the top four. Leeds United, if you remember, went out and spent millions on on top players. And when they failed to reach the Champions League, they crashed and burned. So that was the difference between finishing in the top four and not finishing in the top four. So that financial gap became a chasm. And the only way to bridge that gap was to go out and get a big sugar daddy, which is what Chelsea did with Abramovich and what City did with with the Emiratis and what Newcastle have done with Saudi Arabia. So I think there is a genesis to this that has been largely forgotten. And the old establishment clubs in particular, the Man United and Liverpool's, sit on their moral high horse and say, this is a disgrace, all this new money into football, they're ruining the game. Well, actually it was your clubs in the first place that set us on this road. I'm not saying what's happened since is right, but that's where it started. And we've had this escalation of the arms race ever since. Um, And it's really unfortunate. I don't particularly like it, um, but for those ambitious clubs, there seemed to be no other way. Now, many years ago, and Martin Samuel has written about this as well in the UK and, and quite a few other journalists. The way to stop that arms race was to redistribute the Champions League monies more evenly. And my my theory was always give it to the national associations for them to redistribute it, you know, some to the competing clubs, obviously, more of it, um, but the rest to be filtered down through to, you know, the, the, the lower tiers. And they wouldn't necessarily have this big which created the arms race for clubs to try and catch up. Michel Platini in fairness tried to do that many years ago. And of course, the G14 kiboshed it because it was against their interests. So everybody's been acting in self-interest. But whilst I do not condone uh, the influence and the inputs of money from rather questionable regimes in English football, I do think that there is a genesis that people have uh, largely forgotten about that has led us to this point. Sorry, that was a very long answer. It's a good answer,
2: though.
5: Yes, Simon, you mentioned the moral high horse before. And... I was just thinking about Chelsea's uh, statements around their cup tie against Middlesbrough and protecting the integrity of the game. I don't think they read the room there on on that one. Yeah. And uh, Steve Gibson's response was was spot on and hilarious. But I want to I want to talk a little bit just about on the pitch. Um, despite the house being on fire, Chelsea have got through their Champions League uh, game overnight. They have. Won an FA Cup tie, they've won a Premier League tie. Um, despite everything that's going on, are you are you impressed with the way that Tuchel seems to be keeping this team together and focused despite everything that is happening?
4: Well, yeah, because you know they're still in the running for major trophies, which obviously provides its own motivation. I think to a large degree, I think tellingly, you know, he did come out and say, "I'll be here until at least the end of the season," which. You know, if I was a Chelsea fan, I'll be thinking, "Well, that's him gone at the end of the campaign." If you know, if we haven't sorted the ownership out, and again, that's you know, that's just football at, at the very top level. I think the players at the moment, given that the end of the season is what you know, two three months away, and they're they're in the the offing for both the Champions League and a Champions League spot, and they got a cup quarter final against uh, you know, Middlesbrough at the weekend. So that provides its own motivation. the The, the, the acid test will be. Next season, um, do those players stay if there is uncertainty about their futures? Um, <laughs> you know, are they, are they going to be loyal to that football club or is it on to the next one? I think we know what the answer is going to be if, uh, you know, if, if the conditions aren't favourable. And in many ways, you've got to say that's fair enough. Football has, has become such a brutal business. Why should we expect the players to be any different? Or indeed, Thomas Tuchel. Um, but no, I'm, I'm not surprised that he's, he's kept the ship you know, on a on a steady course, at least so far. And I think that will probably continue to be the case to a large degree to the end of the season. But uh, next year will be key. it be fascinating to see if he's still there next season.
1: And Simon, I noticed the two Arsenal supporters in the room um, uh, neglected to mention the title race. Um, so as the resident Liverpudlian, um, I'm just uh, briefly interested in your views on how they are steaming home as um, the citizens wobble.
4: Yeah, loving that Scouse accent there, Roberts. <laughs> Um, Yeah, look, you know, obviously Liverpool are on a roll at the moment and City have had a bit of a blip. Um, however, as we speak today, I'd still rather be in our position than Liverpool's because we're a point clear. Um, you know, everybody's... <laughs> I keep reading on the BBC and other websites, if Liverpool win every game, they're going to win the title. I'm like, yeah, well, if we win every game bar one, we can afford to draw and we'll still win it. So, you know, I think City are still in the box seat. Now, obviously, you know, the form guide is, is rather different. Um, whether Liverpool are going to have a wobble at some point, I mean, as good as any team is, you can't win every single game every week. It's virtually impossible. Um, so, you know, maybe at Liverpool a dual wobble. I don't know. Um, City, I think, again, against Crystal Palace, and I'm going to you know, revert it to the, to the one... Uh, game that I saw at the weekend uh, from my team. I, I still think Pep's made a mistake by not getting a number nine. I thought that was that was the epitome of the match where we needed to do something a bit different and weren't able to because we just didn't have that sort of player. Now whether that's going to prove costly or not in the long run, I don't know. Um, but I, th- I think it's rather premature for people to be writing City's obituary, particularly when we're top of the league at the moment. <laughs> you know, if we were second or third, I'd say, yeah, well, fair enough, maybe it's gone. But, um, you know, we're still in front and uh, Liverpool have got to come to the Etihad. It's not at Anfield, it's at our joint. So we'll see. But it's, you know, it makes for a fascinating title race. And I think it's, I'd, I'd much prefer that than have it all done and dusted
1: by, you know, the mid-Aprils. Precisely, mate. It's going to be a fun ride. Simon, thank you, mate. Um, We're going to enjoy the ride over the next two weeks from a domestic point of view, and we'll be listening to your voice as you call every moment of it, mate. So enjoy it. Um, Hopefully there'll be some good news uh, on uh, the soccer roof front, and uh, and we'll enjoy uh, watching European football and hopefully some sensible announcements uh, on the park and off it um, over the course of the next few months. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you. No worries. The great Simon Hill, good friend of the show and uh, Australia's leading voice on football in this country. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk more Socceroos and Matilda's club land next on Box to Box.
0: Box to Box. Can you believe it? The chemist warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And storage king. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal
1: this is box to box. Uh, we have took a lot of soccer roos already, but there's time for a little more uh, on the international clubland scene from both the soccer roos and the Matildas. Willem's got it all ready to go. But before we do, you can get a massive half price off Blackmore's vitamins right now. Where at? Where at, Michael? Kenneth Warehouse. Rock, up. Exactly. Thanks for the harmonies in the background. Save big on Blackmore's Vitamin D3 1000 IU 200 capsules, just $14.99 each. That's $15 off the recommended retail price. What a steal, half price. Blackmore's Bio C1000. We're just coming up. You need your vitamin C, 150 tablets, $23 each. Save Ka-ching. $23. dollars off the recommended retail prices, it's time to stock up going into the colder weather. Blackmore's Nail Hair and Skin, 60 tablets, eleven seventy-five, And Blackmore's Lutein Defense, 60 tablets for $20.50. Bum, bum. And of course, don't forget the Chemist Warehouse for your flu jab. The flu bum, season bum. is coming up. It's going to be a tricky one. We need to get our jabs for the flu. Chemist Warehouse, great savings every day. Well, over to you.
3: They are indeed, everyday Rob, Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army now though and things are really ramping up ahead of the Qatar World Cup so it's time to get your travel plans in order and it couldn't be easier to sign up for the Green and Gold Army. You've just got to head to ggatravel.com.au and set the wheels in motion for what will be a massive back end to 2022 and Edge, you might not like to talk about it but will we have concrete plans in a week's time uh, if we have to head over to Qatar a little bit earlier than the end of the year? Yeah, we certainly will, Willem. Keep an eye on that website. Uh, before we get on to Clubland, the young Matildas are set to return to the under-20 World Cup for the first time since 2006, and it's been, uh, it's fallen in their lap a little bit. It's been a bit serendipitous. They're one of three AFC representatives. They're, of course, coached by Leah Blaney, and they'll be headed to Costa Rica in August. Uh, the tournament's going to be played across the two cities of San Jose and Alahuela. Uh, the under 20 Asian Cup is normally the qualifying route for this one, but that was cancelled due to COVID 19. So the top three were invited on rankings, and Australia sit fourth, but the withdrawal of North Korea sees them move up to third. Michael, so what does that tournament mean for the framework of, uh, of junior female development in the country?
2: Oh, it's absolutely fantastic that uh, the current group of under-20s will get the opportunity to go to Costa Rica and, uh, and play in a World Cup. Obviously, uh, the last edition of this event at the Asian Cup was in 2019 and that was the under 20 uh, young Matildas team that got absolutely slaughtered by Japan and South Korea in the final two games 8-0 and 7-0 so um, having said that um, there's only a few of those players that will be available but some great names that uh, you might see going around in that young Matildas team, uh, Mary Fowler is one of those Mm -hmm. Um, another one might be Kyra Cooney-Cross. Another one might be Paige Zoyce. Um, Another one might be Jamila Rankin. So there is plenty of uh, W or A-League women's talent that we've been watching through the course of this year that uh, will be going around for the young Matildas and it is uh, a a fantastic opportunity. uh, Under 20 World Cups, whether they're men or women, uh, fantastic events and That is a great news story for Australian football.
3: Excellent. It's exciting stuff. Let's have a look at how our senior Matildas are going at club level this week. Arsenal remain top of the English Women's Super League, but Chelsea have cut that margin to just two points following two Sam Kerr-inspired wins this week. Kerr scored a last-minute winner against Aston Villa at home on Sunday and then opened the scoring in a 3-0 win against Everton. Chelsea also have a game in hand on the Gunners, uh, who this week beat Brighton 3-0 as Steph Catley played a full 90. Up to Manchester, Alana Kennedy and Hayley Rassel helped. City leapfrog Tottenham into fourth with a 1-0 win over Kaya Simon and Spurs. They love a 1-0 win, that uh, Manchester City women's side. But, Michael, I've got to ask, what's happened in France? Ellie Carpenter and Lyon have dropped points. Uh, That is significant enough in itself, but they've done it to the bottom side. Saint-Étienne, they drew one all, and they've had their lead at the top of the table, cut to just three points with six to go. That would be a turn-up for the books if they were to let that slip. There would be a turn-up for the books. Uh, You look, they are arguably the
2: most... Um, professional of all clubs, uh, women's football around the world, uh, Olympic Lyon. So, um, yeah, that one is a very interesting result. I might add um, a couple of, a little bit of construction news. The home of the Matildas at La Trobe University has Mm -hmm. started to be constructed, Willem, uh, and that's due to be completed by March of 2023, so that's something exciting to look forward to for all Matildas uh, that are young and old. Most
3: certainly is. Let's have a look at the gents. Back in form and back in the Socceroos squad this week was Alma Bill, who's found the net again for casting Passer in the Turkish Super League. Uh, he might not have meant it, Michael. Think Tommy or at Saitama 2013, but they all count for one, so they're up to 15th and clear of danger for now following that win there. One man not selected for the Socceroos was Mas Luongo, who helped Sheffield Wednesday keep pace with League One's top six, playing a full match in a 6-0 display Mantling over Cambridge United. Our weekly Scotland rap saw Tom Rogic come off the bench. as Celtic progressed past Dundee United 3-0 in the Cup. Uh, they've set up a semi-final meeting against another then none other than Rangers. Unfortunately for Cam Devlin, after such a brilliant start to his time with Hearts, he's going to miss the next six weeks with a hamstring injury. So his international uh, debut, if you like, is going to have to wait, as will theirs, Cup semi-final against Hibbs. And it's not often we speak about Switzerland on Socceroos and Matilda Central, but Liam Chipperfield, of course, son of, has netted his first goal for Basel in their 2-0 win over Servette. And just one more from the managerial front, Aurelio Vidmar has landed another job in Thailand, this time as coach of True Bangkok United. So, Michael, where do True Bangkok United or the Angels, as they've known, uh, sit in the the structure and the uh, and the where do they sit generally in, in Thai football? They are in the top division,
2: and uh, they're they're actually uh, one of the uh, mid ranking clubs. And uh, yeah, they're a very well supported team in in Bangkok, and um, they play their home games in Sukhumvit. And people might know Sukhumvit because that is the central business district and uh, party zone of Bangkok. And they've got a little stadium that sits, seats about uh, 20,000 people at the uh, just to the back of uh, Soy Sip Bad, which is uh, Soy 18.
3: Do we make like enough of Aurelio's success and career as a manager? He's a little bit off the grid in Thailand there, but you're, you're competing with factors outside of what uh, you'd be competing with if you were coaching in the Western world. He's made a good fist of it over a couple of clubs there over, over a decade now. Uh,
2: the Thai... The Thai Professional League is now um, becoming one of the um, best Southeast Asian leagues. And, uh, you know, I actually believe, uh, I've seen quite a few of those matches and do believe that it's a, a standard that's comparable to uh, the A League. Um, and it's an interesting place. There is some money, uh, quite a bit of money in the league at the moment. Buriyam is the big team. Uh, Chiang Rai United is also a big team, as, as is uh, Port Bangkok. Um, so, look, there's. Um, there's a lot to like about Thai football and it really owes achievement. Uh, coaching there is not to be underestimated because of the challenges of coaching uh, in a foreign environment where another language is spoken. So that's a significant one. They have Each team has three or four um, um, imports that play and obviously um, Matt Smith, the former Brisbane player, um, uh, Brisbane raw skipper uh, he played for Bangkok glass which is the original uh, Bangkok United where Aurelio's is coaching he played for them for four or five years and of, of course um, Brandon O'Neill who have had on the program talked about his time at uh, buriam, buriam as well so uh, and they anybody who, who's involved in uh, Thai football who goes there to play has a great experience and I'm sure Aurelio is loving life playing uh, coaching one of the big clubs in Thailand
3: Let's stay with Asian football to finish the Champions League group stages, and the teams that will contest that are locked and loaded. And unfortunately, Melbourne Victory have just missed out, uh, despite a highly entertaining, thrilling clash against Vissel Kobe in their qualifier. They went down four three, but it was magnificent to see. Really, Nick D'Agostino and Ben Falami, two guys who have really uh, gone from maybe guys at the crossroads, just sort of picking up A League contracts and developing as they go to uh, real senior footballers under Tony Popovic uh, over the last uh, over the last probably two years for for Nick D'Agostino. I was with him at and Falami this season, uh, to really see those guys shouldering the load and taking it up to to proper opposition. And I don't think any Victory fan would have uh, walked away from that one, Rob, uh, disappointed uh, despite the fact that they're not going to go on to the group stages.
1: No, no, it was uh, a, um, you know... uh a loss, but it was a loss where it, you could really see that they dug in and, and given it their best effort. And I know, I mean, look, I'm probably not the person to to, to respond in detail on this because Edge watches the uh, the Asian Champions League so closely. But Edge, uh, do, do you think this is uh, is uh, uh, you know a, a line in the sand for well, not necessarily Australian clubs, but at the very least victory?
2: Oh, it was an epic match, and it was a great performance. And all I can say is that Andreas Iniesta, at thirty-seven years of age, he's worth every bit of the thirty-seven, uh, sorry, the thirty-two million dollars he gets paid. Uh, by Vissel Kobe to get run around for them. He was superb. Um, and look, victory competed really, really well. And for those people who like the nuances of um, of football and competitions around the world, in particular Champions League, this was a playoff, and it was a typical playoff match. Once the first goal went in, uh, both coaches went to attacking formations, and that's why we got seven goals. It was an incredibly fun event to watch. And I just want to uh, channel the words of Tony Popovich post-match. He summed it up perfectly. It was a wonderful performance. I couldn't be more proud of what we did for our football club and for our league in Australia. Um, uh, obviously, we're not going to go on to the, the, the group stage of the Champions League, but uh, we've flown the flag and uh, I look forward to being involved in years to come.
1: All right, gentlemen, uh, you are going to take over for the next uh, chat with Rebecca Stott. I'm going to go and get myself a coffee um, and we'll be listening with uh, interest uh, to see how she thinks her club can regroup after that uh, gut-wrenching loss to Sydney FC. Can they beat Melbourne victory? We're going to find out what Rebecca Stott has to say about that after the break. And I will return for Stoppage Time.
0: Box to Box. Can you believe? for chemist warehouse home of real brands and real savings and storage king the kings of storage moving and more and this could be the most
3: crucial goal of well, Melbourne City had one foot in the A-League Women's Grand Final last weekend against Sydney FC. They didn't quite seal the deal, but they get another chance this Sunday when they face Melbourne victory at Amy Park. Crucial to City's pursuit of a fifth A-League Women's Crown is Rebecca Stott, and she joins us now on Box to Box. Rebecca, thanks for joining us.
6: No worries. Uh, thanks for having me.
3: Everyone's familiar with your story and what you've experienced over the past 20 or so months, so it really has been a highlight of the season to see you back on the pitch. And this weekend, you play your 100th game in the competition. Um, you've been a real stalwart of our, of our league, so have you had a second? Reflect on on what this milestone means to reach the ton?
6: Yeah, it's huge. Um, 100 games is is a lot of games. Um, So, no, I'm so happy to get this milestone, and especially after the year, um, last year that I had, um, makes it even more special.
3: And if we can reflect on the week just gone before we look ahead to the derby, 2-0 up against Sydney FC and uh, look to be sort of cruising only to watch it all sort of wither away, a couple of late red cards as well. So how does Rado pick the, uh, the team up and how do you pick yourself up and go again? Is, do you go the full review or do you consign that one to the bin and just and look ahead?
6: Uh, we definitely had a review of this and kind of went over things that we did well, especially in the first half. Um, but yeah, then now that's out of our mind and we look forward to the next game and we had a good week of training. So yeah, we should be ready to go.
2: Stoddy, I need to say thank you to you. You gave me one of my great um, footballing moments of the pandemic. I dropped into Bulleen on a Monday night and uh, <laughs> just so happened to see you come back onto the field after for the first time after your your treatment for your illness. And um, I was just taken by the response of everybody at the game, not only your teammates and the Bulleen uh, supporters and, uh, but like the opposition, everybody just uh, gave you a big cheer and I just thought it was a, a lovely moment and, and it was replicated when you got on the park for City and no doubt it happened when you got on the park for the Kiwis recently as well. Um, just what has it meant to you to have um, the football community with you on your journey
6: yeah, it's amazing. Um, I didn't quite expect that reaction at Bulleen as well, and so it caught me off guard. Um, but, no, it's been really special, and to have the support of all my teammates, the staff, um, and the football community has been incredible. Um, so, yeah, it's been amazing.
2: And uh, But you've got some business do on the weekend. You are one of the prime movers in the Melbourne City team. You've been playing up the field a fair bit too, which is um, for those people that watch City... Closely um, since the inception of the A-League, most of your time has been in defence. So um, can you just tell us about the approach to this season? Um, you, you went from seventh place last season, you know, to playing off a grand final on Sunday. It's a, It's been a remarkable turnaround. And I read that Emma Checker said that it was great trust in the playing group. Um, can you just tell us about the transition from last year to this year and uh, also you playing up the field a bit? Are you enjoying that?
6: Yeah, Um I can't really talk for last year cause I wasn't here. Um, but I mean, yeah, we have had a lot of improvements and, um, the playing group that has come in for the players that weren't here last year, um, brought in a lot of talent and young youthful talent. So I think that's been huge for us. Um, yeah, uh, we've had a, a hard, hard road to this stage. And even last week we've lost uh, two of our starters, which has been challenging. Um, but no, we're, we're excited and, and the team is great. This is a great bunch of girls and yeah, we do have a lot of trust in each other and trust in the coaching staff. So um, it's, it's been a good season.
2: Well, um, you, you mentioned last week's match. Obviously, um, uh, TJ Vlanich was uh, red-carded um, and also she may not have been able to come up. She got injured at the same time. But uh, also Melissa Barbieri in the dying moments was also red-carded. So... Um, Sally James and Chelsea Bliss, Blissett are the likely uh, players to come in. Sally, um, I'd have to say, would have to be the best number two. I mean, she was brought to the club to be the number one, but Bubz, um took her spot and has been playing so well that you, you really can't replace her. So I don't think you lose um, a lot in goalkeeping talent, but you definitely lose a lot in experience and also just um, the impact Bubs has on the field. I mean, she's almost like a second coach, isn't
3: she? Yes,
6: yeah, Bubs is very vocal and she's a very good leader at the back there. So, yeah, that side will definitely be missed. But I have all faith in Sally. Um, she's a great keeper in training. She pulled off some ridiculous saves. And unfortunately for her, she got injured early in pre season. Um, so, yeah, Bubs took the reins. But I mean, Bob has been amazing. But I have no doubt Sally will come in and, and do the job. And
2: Chelsea Blissett. Um A young Matilda, um, she she had an ACL injury last year, so she's been sort of um, building her um, game time. She's had a few starts. She's come off the bench. So um, TJ, obviously an experienced player, but Chelsea is one of the the real uh, stars of the future. So um, she'll obviously have a good impact. And again, um, you lose TJ, but Chelsea's a ready-made replacement for her, isn't she? Yeah.
6: I mean, to overcome an ACL, you have to have a lot of resilience, and that's what Chelsea has. So... Um, I'm excited for the weekend and I hope these players can really come in and, and bring it to victory and I'm sure they will.
3: Rebecca, having a look at the national side, uh, back with the football ferns, and you've recently uh, been back in the setup competing at the She Believes Cup against the US, Iceland and the Czech Republic. Uh, For those not au fait with this competition, could you run us through what it is, uh, the experience that you had there, and what it means for the side on the path to next year's World Cup?
6: Yes, just a mini tournament. I think um, for us, we used it as a World Cup replication, um, a group of So it's very similar Um, So that's how we approached it Um, Obviously a really tough game Against the US and Iceland Are a great team and so are Czech So yeah it was a hard tournament for us And we learned a lot and we'll take that Into the next tour against Australia And hopefully get some better results And perform better
3: and just to finish to uh, speak about new zealand women's football more broadly obviously the introduction of wellington phoenix into the a-league women's this season uh was where well, the idea is to probably maybe grow the talent pool a little bit and push through a little bit more competition ahead of that women's world cup so although you're not playing with the squad have you have you kept an eye on how it's developed and uh and yeah how do you, how do you think that concept has gone a season in
6: yeah i love to watch their games i think over the, the time of the season they improved hugely and um you can definitely see a few players coming through that really will be pushing for national team spots soon uh, in the senior side. So I think it's such a good thing for New Zealand football and um, I just can't wait for the girls to get more experience in the W League and just just going to help us.
2: Stoddy, um, the... Melbourne Victory and Melbourne City have never played in a final since the inception of the uh, W League or A League women. Um, what's, uh, what does the derby mean to both clubs? I know you've got plenty of mates uh, over at Melbourne Victory as well, but um, uh, just tell us uh, how more intense those games are and and, and the build-up and what's it mean to play your uh, crosstown rivals and especially in a final? Yeah,
6: huge. Um, a derby is always a hard game. It's always fiery. There's always a lot of passion. and to make it even crazier to finals to get to the granny. Um, So it's going to be a massive game. I'm so excited. I know the girls love playing in these games and um, hopefully we can bring out our strength and our um, fight and, come away with the win and get ourselves into the grand final.
3: Fantastic, Rebecca. Well, thank you. As we've said, seeing you back on the pitch this season really has been one of the uh, the moments of the campaign which has transcended results in the competition. So, uh, it would, having said that, be special to see you cap it with some success on the pitch uh, this Sunday and into next week as well. So, all the best and thanks for joining us on Box to Box.
0: Box to Box. Can you
3: believe it? For chemist warehouse.
0: Home of real brands and real savings.
1: And Storage King.
0: The kings of storage moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal
1: Yes, this is Box to Box. This is stoppage time. Plenty of time left to bring it home. We talked a lot about uh, Europe earlier on in the show with Simon Hill, but uh, Derek, um, there's still a few topics on the agenda that uh, that we need to to wrap up before we uh, put the queue in the rack for this week.
5: Yes, Rob, there's always a, a full calendar of football fixtures and stories for us to talk, uh, particularly in the European game. We, we spoke to Simon briefly about Chelsea, who... Uh, you know, despite the house being on fire, as they said, uh, secured a four-one aggregate win uh, over Lille. Uh, they didn't win the game on the night, but they, uh, well they did. Sorry, they did win the game on the night. They went one-nil down, uh, and uh, thankfully for them, they got the, the two goals to to seal the tie. And they will, they will be relieved. Uh, one Premier League team that won't be there though is Manchester United. Uh, a lot, a lot of talk that this was. Pretty much one of the key games for them this season, and for Ranić. and uh, they really got um, schooled by Atletico Madrid. Uh, you know who who rode their luck at times. Uh, Oblak, the goalkeeper, uh, had to make some some decent saves, but once they got the noses in front, uh, they did what all kind of Simeone teams do and ground that victory out. This isn't a vintage Atletico side by any stretch, but Manchester United will now be focusing on that top four race um which we will get on to in a moment just to round up the champions league though benfica smash and grabbed uh things in in the amsterdam arena and Ajax with a one nil win to take them through to the first time uh, in a while to the quarterfinals and aim for the gloriously named darwin nunez uh for that one and uh, villarreal of course but possibly the shock of the round or at least this round of fixtures as the uh, Unai Emery team beat Juventus quite comprehensively uh, at the old ladies' uh, ground, And uh, uh, that's great stuff from Unai Emery. He's known as a bit of a Europa League specialist, but uh, despite their patchy domestic form uh, has taken Villarreal into the uh, quarterfinals of of, of the Champions League and, I think they're always perceived as being one of the weaker sides, but I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to uh, to be drawn against uh, drawn against them. That they're a sweet, street smart European side. Then going over to the Europa League, you know, the story of the night was probably Andrei Yarmolenko scoring an extra time winner for West Ham. And they've, you know, talking of Emery, their former club that he used to manage to some success in Europe. Seville, they've beaten Seville, and that's a proper win. For West Ham United, that uh, Sevilla are no mugs. They're going well in La Liga. West Ham, uh, you know, we've uh, kind of all expected them to to fall away a bit this season, but they're still there despite their thin squad and the stretching of the resources. But they're in their first European quarterfinal since 1981. They won't be joined. Uh, well, they will be joined by Barcelona. Just incidentally, Aubameyang scored a seventh goal in seven uh, games. Uh, so they're Looking good in the Europa League, and uh, Rangers will uh, not be in that tournament. They lost to Red Star Belgrade, and in the Europa Conference League, Leicester beat Ren, and they are surely now favourites for the tournament. They're the best of the teams left in that one. They beat Ren three two on aggregate, uh, and they are they are through. Just a quick line edge. I'll get your view on Barcelona. Obviously, on the pitch, they're turning things around. They have just signed a major deal with Spotify, which will not not just include uh, logo on shirts, but also uh, the new camp rebranding as Spotify Camp New. Uh, that is a much needed injection of funds, and I suppose it's telling of the times that we live in that even. Uh, Barcelona need to slay the sacred cow in order to get the cash in the door.
2: Well, they certainly do. Their uh, financial situation has been much documented and discussed on this show. They're facing uh, all sorts of problems financially. Their stadium uh, has big big um, structural issues. They need to spend an enormous amount on the stadium. Um, having said all of that, uh, they, there is a bit of a gift from heaven. Um, that was what... Uh, um, the coach said, um, after the, the smiling Barcelona coach, um, the great Xavi, said about our old man uh, Aubameyang, who has scored seven goals in seven games for Barcelona. He's doing, uh, not, not since um, Zlatan Abrimović in 2009 has there been a player that's joined Barcelona, had such an impact. So uh, they're doing okay on the field, uh, Derek.
5: It's a good segue and one that we have to do, Ed. So grit your teeth into the Premier League roundup. And Arsenal possibly could have done with uh, Aubameyang on the pitch against Barcelona. That being said, I have. Sorry, against Barcelona, sorry. Uh, against Liverpool. That being said, I am still clear in my mind that it was still the right thing for Arsenal to do. But zero shots on target tells the story in the home game against Liverpool, who overcame quite a spirited. Um, first half performance from Arsenal, uh, and 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 again that man Jota. I've written in my nose bloody Jota again. Uh, he always seems to score against us. And uh, uh, they took it, they took it two 0 And and congrats, Rob. Yes, the the uh, title race is very much alive. Um, I, I am though heartened, Edge, with Arsenal's performance. It wasn't the obliteration that we expect against Liverpool. I think progress, albeit very slowly, is being made.
2: Progress is being made. They had taken some of those chances they had in the first 60 minutes of the match. The result might have been different. But we've got a lot to smile about as Arsenal fans from last to fourth in the the one season. Don't forget, after three matches, the Gunners sat bottom with zero points and a negative nine goal difference. And uh, after the recent uh, win over Watford, they got up to as high as fourth. They're still well in the hunt for a top four position uh, which would be returned to Champions League football for the Gunners um, and despite that loss of um Aubameyang to uh, Barcelona they have been uh, cobbling together a forward uh, structure that's uh, getting enough goals for them to win matches so uh, I'm still um Ever hopeful about
1: a good finish to the season, Derek.
5: And look, because Rob had his say on this in the previous segment with uh, Simon Hill. I don't, don't think go, I don't I think we need to, to cut to Rob
1: and compliment you on uh, on uh, Martin Odegaard, um, the 23-year-old veteran. He debuted for Norway when he was 15 years old, went to Real at 16, and he seems to be the linchpin around a lot of. Uh, the, uh, the improvement uh, at your club. So you're right, Edge, that you were Arsenal very good for that first 60 minutes, but uh, um, a lot more promising future for Arsenal ahead than uh, than the Red Devils uh, up north.
2: But seriously, Rob, um, Philip Coutinho, one of your old mum, he seems to be um, well and surely uh, slotted in at home at Aston Villa, hasn't he? He's, he's played... 598 minutes for Aston Villa, in which time he scored four goals and set up three more. Villa have won three league games in a row for the first time since the beginning of last season. There's a real sense of momentum at Villa. Uh, What do you think about that, Derek and Rob? Um, Coutinho, quite aside from his direct contribution, um, a player of that stature going to that club. Um, uh, Stevie G seems to be working his magic there slowly.
5: Slowly, I would say. He obviously had a strong start. He then actually went through quite a lean patch where they lost quite a few consecutive games but they are back now Coutinho as you said has definitely been one of the key players and we were all interested to see how he went. Uh, Rumour mill is saying that Arsenal are actually looking at Coutinho as well I don't know where he gets into the side at the moment or it certainly would be at the expense of an Odegaard or a Smith Rowe or some of the other young players that we're all loving so much but I I think uh, uh, villas villas sort of performance blip did go under the radar a bit and i think overall gerard is is doing a good job and look, it's probably going to be been table for them this season i think they can set their sights a little higher um next, next season, season for mm. sure um and just the other another game just without top four race of course was tottenham they beat brighton who to be honest um Thank goodness for them that they have points on the board because they have. N- that's a team that are not winning games at the moment. The goals have dried up. Their goalkeeper Sanchez looks like a total liability at the back. Uh, should have been a red for him. I must admit, I've the, been watching watching
2: him playing. Um, uh, soccer his fans uh, would be saying, uh, "You let a good keeper, go, a good goalkeeper yes. go to put him in the sticks, feeding him." That's a that is a that is a blunder. Matt Ryan would it, it have is. done performed a lot better than what he did last in that match. Oh,
5: yeah. It's calamity from Sanchez. Matt Ryan. I can understand why, with with the Ramsdale on the team, Arsenal couldn't see a future for him. But uh, certainly could be doing a better job than Sanchez at Brighton. Uh, but Harry Harry Kane got a goal. Uh, Antonio Conte says that uh, Harry Kane quote deserves to win something. Um, So I suggest to Harry Kane that he goes and buys a scratch card or a lottery ticket uh, (laughs) because it's probably... Or get a new club, but it's probably not going to happen at Tottenham. But the top four, the top four race is hotting up, and yes, one of Arsenal's game in hand is now gone, uh, and there are a couple left. They are against Tottenham and Chelsea. So the, Arsenal look good in the table, but then they are by far from home and hose. So I think it will go right down to the wire. At the other end of the table, speaking of ex, uh, Arsenal, ex-Arsenal player Alex Awobi scored a 99th minute goal. Uh, to, massive, uh, you know, for Everton to get that win over Newcastle—it it, just a gigantic result for them. It was really looking quite bad for Frank Lampard and, and Everton. They, they looked a um, looked a spent force and, and plunging down the table. But that that win is huge. It means that Newcastle's kind of resurgence has been checked. Leeds, of course, beat Norwich, who, who looked doomed. Um, uh, and it's and Burnley also looked doomed. So, look, it's, it's it's all still to play for down there, but it's looking grim for Norwich and Burnley, and I think Everton, Leeds and Newcastle, there's still work to be done
2: there. I think all the A-League owners should get in a room and they should watch the last three minutes of um, the Everton and Newcastle match because in the, all the gimmicks around you know, Celtic Rangers tours to play Western Sydney and Sydney FC and the A-League All-Stars, there's one um, staring obvious structural thing they can do, the A-League, to make it more popular, and that is relegation. Because the last five minutes, let alone the whole match, but the last five minutes of that were completely epic. Nothing draws the eyeballs to televisions like a relegation battle.
1: 100%. There's no question about it. I guess the the conversation for a long time... uh, that was on everybody's lips domestically was around extending the the A league uh, adding extra clubs so that's been done at least we know that the uh, the promotion relegation discussions on the agenda i think the one thing that we're all missing right now is a timeline i mean whether it's 10 years time or whatever uh, on either side uh, you know maybe 8 maybe 12 it's got to happen within that sort of broad decade period uh, ahead and 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 the football community's got to have a uh, an expectation to work towards, don't don't you think?
2: Absolutely, yeah. It's just the most epic uh, nature of football in Europe that uh, uh, we miss out on. Mm-hmm. And I remember the old days in the NSL, um, been involved in many uh, relegation battles, which were just um, just as epic and electric. Uh, as a stakeholder, talk to any former player, fan, um, and, pe- and people involved in uh, relegation battles in the NSL, they were brilliant. They uh, were brilliant, unless you run the uh, losing side. Oh,
5: absolutely! It's the it's the it's the, uh, the jeopardy for sure edge, and Everton, are a team that haven't been uh, relegated since the nineteen fifties, they're they're not used to it. For example, so I think that just makes it even more compelling as well. And I wanted to call out one of those other teams that are flirting with relegation, possibly safe now at Brentford, but the link there is Christian Eriksen. Just wanted to flag that he has had his international recall to Denmark. What a last month or so for him since his cardiac arrest yeah. in back in 2020, guys. I remember us all being pretty somber, speculating that the guy probably wasn't going to lace up football boots again in any significant way. The guy's back in what is a fantastic Danish outfit. And, I mean, Edge, what a, what a massive
2: turnaround for Ericsson. Yeah, and he's been contributing amazingly on the field, so... Uh, what a what a moment in, uh, in time that'll be should he get back on the field for his national team let alone what he's been doing for Brentford he looks really committed to uh, the task at Brentford as well by his body language he's just loving it
1: alright boys let's wrap it up there we could continue on forever but we won't um, next time we get together we will know the result of the Australia-Japan match. So for our listeners out there, as we've done this week, we're recording later in the week. We'll be recording after the Socceroos-Japan match uh, on Thursday evening next week. So we'll have a full wrap-up of that uh, result and preview of the Saudi Arabia match as well, hopefully We'll all be celebrating. All right, Michael, will you have a good week ahead, my friend?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have a great weekend. Uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, Premier final in the A-League women. It should be a great match. And I'll just leave you with a quote from Alisher Usmanov, the uh, Everton oligarch who was, uh, sadly, um, for Everton fans, um, his money is no longer welcome there. But he said he gets a lot of criticism about how he made his money. He said he made his money from manufacturing plastic bags. You can't go wrong with plastic bags. They break and everybody needs them.
1: I've got a harbour bridge to sell you there, Michael, if you believe that one. Uh, Derek, thank you. Thanks. Yes, Roman,
5: Roman Abramovich used to sell uh, bathroom rubber ducks from his flat in Moscow. So there you go.
1: That is a true story. Well, i um, well done. Thank you, my friend. Good on you guys. Thank you. And Damo, um, very happy Damo for followers of uh, the domestic uh, Indigenous uh, uh, game. Uh, he's a very happy camper with uh, his team, uh, Carlton, having beaten Richmond uh, in the opening round of the season. So forgive me for intruding with uh, sports other than football, but Big ball. Uh, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, please subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook, and join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.